This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and the Leadership Fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the mission of the Information Management and Technology Directorate within the Office of the Secretary of Defense? How does technology form the connective tissue that ties OSD's missions together? And how is the Information Management and Technology Directorate maximizing the use of technology to support the Office of Secretary of Defense? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Danielle Metz, Director of the Information Management and Technology Directorate and CIO of the Office of Secretary of Defense. Danielle, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Danielle, would you tell us more about the mission of your office and what prompted its creation? And more importantly, how does it support the overall mission of the Department of Defense? Sure. So I think every great story begins with an origin story. And so uh, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Secretary Hicks, requested to have a study done to kind of assess the IT landscape of the Pentagon and primarily of her Office of Secretary of Defense staff. And that's comprised of 17 principal staff assistants. And think of Undersecretary of uh, Acquisition Sustainment, Undersecretary of Research and uh, Engineering. Those are the folks that are politically appointed, Senate confirmed, uh, that serve at the uh, behest of the administration. And so they're doing incredibly important work. But the IT, quite frankly, in the Pentagon has suffered over the past 20 plus years simply because of how we treated technology either treating it as less than, not necessarily a critical uh, part of mission. We used to also think that IT was like, if it was okay and we can make it cheaper so that we can scoop up some savings and apply it to other mission-critical areas, then that's good enough. Um, and so there was a, a number of consolidation efforts over those 20 years that kind of you know, uh, decided this is going to be good enough. And we're going to take those dollars and apply it elsewhere. And so we kind of limped along with that. And Secretary Hicks is a real big believer in technology, uh, ensuring that her workforce has the right tools to be successful. And so she commissioned this study. She asked me to do it. With We had a small team of uh, talented government civilians and contractors. And in 60 days, we did an assessment, provided her a report with recommendations, and the way that we went about doing this report, it was really important to us to be able to talk to the user. So we conducted individual listening sessions with each of those principal staff assistants. We were able to hear um, their concerns, their frustrations, what was going right, what was going wrong. And I was able to ask one question um, that we received a consistent theme. And the question was, how do you use technology to execute your mission? And the resounding response was, we don't. And as a technologist, that was a real punch in the gut because we, my team, and I have deployed a number of enterprise capabilities over the years for the Department of Defense and its mission partners. And to hear that it was not, 
either there was business processes that were causing hindrances or we didn't have the right training for people to understand the power that was at their fingertips was really disconcerting. And so we took, you know, the listening sessions. We did a lot of documentation review. I also reached out to what I affectionately call the historical figures, those who served as senior IT leaders in the past, to ask them, hey, what you know now, how would you do it differently? And we fused all of that to provide the the report. And the big issue or the big recommendation that we came up with was the OSD does not have a chief information officer or CIO. And so therefore, there is no one that is representing OSD from an IT strategic vantage point. There is not a community for OSD to see themselves as one as opposed to 17 individual kind of fiefdoms each independently battling for precious resources, not having enough technical acumen because those were kind of taken away from them as well. And so you could see kind of a pattern of have and have nots. There is a patchwork of ineffectiveness, I'll call it. And so we thought that professionalizing the CIO and having a CIO for OSD to treat OSD as an IT enterprise um, change how we engage with the service provider so it's more customer Uh, focused and led as opposed to it being service provider driven, and then really maximizing the technology that we deploy. Those were the three main goals that we came up with. And so that's what we've embarked over the past uh, year to kind of, you know, go after those ambitious uh, goals. So it leads into what your role is as the, as I understand it, the Director of Information Management and Technology within the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So what are your responsibilities and duties? And and can you clarify, did your report lead to the establishment of a CIO in the secretaries? It did. So um, you know how the Department of Defense likes to have many titles. So I have two. <laughs> I'm the Director of Information Management and Technology, and, and I'm also the OSD CIO. And so based on that, um, we went about, and the DSD, Secretary Hicks, established this office um, in October of 2023. So we just celebrated our year plus anniversary. And so we tasked ourselves in that memo that she designated us as OSDCIO to come up with an implementation plan to be able to show what key uh, deliverables we were going to achieve over FY23, FY24, and then look on the horizon for FY25. And so that's exactly what we did. We submitted an implementation plan to um, Secretary Hicks, February of 2023, and it uh, touched on those three goals that I mentioned earlier. So treat OSD as um, an IT enterprise. And the way that we went about doing that was continuing those listening sessions with the principal staff assistants, creating governance uh, forums for OSD. So we have two charter governance bodies. One is to have the entire OSD IT enterprise represented so we can come up with a voice for OSD that would then be represented in the the second governance forum, which is the customer-led. So um, we have our service provider in the Pentagon. We have three main customer bases, OSD, Joint Staff, and Department of Headquarters Army. They're called the three onboarded customers. So we receive all of our services from the service provider. And so we created this forum that we were able to unite these three customer bases together, along with the other um, organizations that receive some services from the service provider. And this allows us to be able to 
from the customer perspective, work together, synthesize our respective requirements, see what our modernization plans are, champion and prioritize what we need, work directly with the service provider, come up with performance metrics that we're able to hold not only the service provider, but ourselves accountable. And we meet on a quarterly basis to be able to do this. So the, for the past year, we've we've been working through this. Most times when people think of governance, they're like, oh, so boring, <laughs> oversight, and people tell me what to do. The way I view and treat governance is that it's important for representing the user feedback, accountability, and transparency. Absolutely. And so that's what we've been, we've established it, now we've been working with it, and FY24 really going to lean in and ensure that we truly represent the user community because that's who we serve, um, that we have the accountability and the transparency so that everyone's really witting of what technology is being deployed, how to use it, how well is it being received. And then based on all those data points, we'll be able to kind of pull levers and buttons to adjust accordingly. So that's how we came about for um, doing goal one of establish OSD as an IT enterprise. The second uh, was to treat us like an OSD uh, IT enterprise. So we went about doing that uh, through those governance um, forums. And then the, the last is to maximize IT, so the technology that we're deploying. And we go about this um, in terms of ensuring that we have the right dynamic training, really understanding what the user's needs are, what they're missing, what capabilities that they think they're missing, and ensuring that they have the right um, customized training to ensure like the enterprise capabilities that we delivered, like DOD 365, that they understand not only do you have Teams and OneDrive, but you have all these other types of activities that you can do that can really make your collaboration and online productivity much more effective. And so we're able to see how through the listening sessions and the user experience surveys, how we're making um, some some impacts based on those types of engagements. And it's really just bringing everything to the forefront and engaging um, the right folks at the right echelons, all the way up to the actual PSA, so they can really uh, understand the importance of technology and that it is a critical undercurrent for everything and anything that we do in the Department of Defense. So, you know, when you think reflectively about your year building this organization, what were some of the top challenges? Maybe maybe management challenges or what have you, culture challenges, organizational challenges that you faced, and how did you address them? So I think the biggest challenge, and this is true with any type of major endeavor, is change yeah. and change management. And so, you know, there's some organizations and individuals that do were doing really well in status quo. And so they were able to identify, you know, value in what they were providing and doing for their respective organization. And if there's going to be a change to that status quo, right, you can see that there's going to be tension and frustration and, and feeling that their value is going to be taken away. Um, and so we really had to come at it from a, what I like to think of as very people-oriented, right? Because if you can't engage with the people, then you're not going to be able to have an impact on the mission, and so we really went in with trying to have um, build trust and prove our value as an office as to why we were doing this. And really, the point of our office was to democratize access to technology and for the ability of all those 17 principal staff assistance organizations to be able to have access and the right tools and capabilities to execute whatever their mission is on behalf of the secretary and the deputy secretary of defense. 
And so, you know, over the past year, we really endeavored on continuing monthly listening sessions with each of the PSAs. We have those governance forums, so there's opportunities for additional engagement, user feedback. And as we build out our strategies, we're doing it with in concert and collaboration with our stakeholders. So they can see themselves, not only as we define what the problem statement is, so they're like, yep, that's the problem, that's what we need to go about doing, but they're a part of the solution of how we're going to correct that problem, right? And so they can take a sense of ownership, empowerment, and then they're able to actually be, you know, active partners as we endeavor upon implementing those strategic vision statements. So I think that was the biggest part. And, you know, that's not to say that everything's going perfectly, <laughs> right? There's a lot of fits and starts. There's a lot of trust that needs to be built. But I think that we've been able to show our value early on based on the fact that we really are respectful of the individual organizations and, and the the individuals who make up those organizations and listening, like truly listening, and for them to be a part of the solution as opposed to feeling that we are dictating mm-hmm. something or telling them, well, you're doing this the wrong way. You really ought to be doing that because that doesn't really lend any favors. Mm-hmm. That causes more tension. And you're not going to be able to go after the real reason why we're here is because we want to make sure that we everyone has the capabilities that they need to execute their mission. Mm-hmm. Um, so those types of partnerships have been really important. And then everything around that, how we build our strategy, how we engage is the user is the centerpiece. And to me, I think that's been a big like paradigm shift because often you think about, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago or even five years ago, most of the modernization strategies have been focused on the technology and just the technology. And that this one silver bullet was going to solve everyone's problems. And what was missing, I believe, is the fact that we really needed to focus on the people transforming how they receive, how they think about technology, how they use technology, kind of equating business outcomes, Mm -hmm. because most people aren't technologists. And so if we talk about buzzwords like zero trust and cloud, that doesn't really resonate with a comptroller or logistician or human resources. But if you talk about how the technology leads to a business outcome that relates to them, now we're having a conversation. Now we're, we're able to really solicit what they need and ensure that the technology we're delivering is meeting that need. So I think that is really important. And then the second aspect that is just as important as the people is the processes. So over the years, DOD, it's quite true about any organization, we love price, process, right? But sometimes it gets kind of rooted and then it becomes stagnant. And then there becomes a folklore. Well, we can't do it because remember this, that, the other. And so that's not true. Processes need to have flexibility. They need to be refreshed. They need to be reviewed every so often be like, is this serving the need or not? And if it's not, why do we have it? I'm not saying that we just throw out all the processes. We do need to have processes. We do need to have rigor and structure. But they need to be adaptable and in line with the current reality that we live in. And with technology, because it's so dynamic, that means you constantly need to be refreshing your business processes so that they're not becoming a hindrance to your ability to deliver technology. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, I feel like um, there's kind of this break. Um, So people in their personal lives use technology really well. You know, we stream everything on TV, our phones, we're connected to just about everything, banks, 
for my son. I'm able to track him at school. I'm able to engage with his teachers, texts and such like that, virtual everything. But when we come into the workplace, that's not necessarily true. And we think that we shouldn't have that. And so I think that, you know, kind of bridging that divide, that break of how we use technology in our personal lives to enrich our experiences and how we use it in our professional setting, it goes about having those types of conversations so you can really connect with the user so that they don't look at technology as a fear factor, but just something that they're able to use seamlessly, but where the technologist is the one is making that happen really thinking about what the right technology is, what the right training is to to um, make sure that people who are receiving the technology are actually using it, and the business processes around that technology. That's the responsibility of a CIO, I believe. So, like, when you took over this role and you're building this organization, what surprised you most? What surprised me most? Um, well, really, because I have been in the CIO um, community for quite a while, mm-hmm. I will have to say that Nothing surprised me in the sense that because it's this it's the same thing, right? You have issues, concerns, you have lack of resources, you have a lot of priorities, you have a lot of organizations that think whatever they're doing is the most important. And trying to kind of wrangle all of that together is a story as old as time, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. But the way that I think we go about it has been different because we've learned. My team and I have learned over, we're battle scarred from the years of doing this. And so it really goes back to focusing on the user mm-hmm. and ensuring that you know, you know your user base, you're able to build a community so that your community, your user base community, sees that they're a part of something, that they're not individually trying to figure this out for themselves, but they can rely on a community of practice to be able to do these things. Um, and it builds trust and rapport and a professionalism within that community. And then, because you are listening to your user debates, they feel empowered. They're able to take ownership of the strategies that you're implementing. And it just b- builds this cycle of goodness, right? So they see what you're bringing to the table for them to do their job better. Um, they become your advocate. So your brand in terms of a CIO and your effectiveness in, in terms of providing the right capabilities and enhancing mission becomes better known. And then as a CIO, you are on par within the C-suite as being like someone who can um, – move the ball forward for your organization, for your department, and that your perspective, your uh, your strategic mindset matters and needs to be listened to and included in part of the overarching department um, strategy. Mm-hmm. That's great. So, Danielle, tell us a little bit about yourself, your career path, uh, what your background is, and how you got to this role. Sure. So, my path, like most, was not straightforward. So, I have a... Um, Bachelor of Arts uh, from the University of Georgia, Political Science and Religion, and then a, a Master's of Economics in International Relations at the University of Wales in Aberystwyth. And so if you were to ask my 20-something self what I wanted to be, it was a foreign diplomat. Yeah. I wanted to be an ambassador. Um, but, you know, I'm happy that I wasn't so rigid in how I wanted to do things. So when I moved to D.C., 
you know, I started applying to a lot of different opportunities. And so the first real, quote unquote, job I had <laughs> um, was as a defense contractor during arms control issues. Oh, wow. And then through that, was able to work for a small woman-owned uh, company that was contracted to Defense uh, Information Systems Agency, uh, DISA. And that was my first foray into uh, technology and acquisition. And so I became a program manager, really loved what I was doing, was incredibly um, blessed to work with some magnificent engineers and program managers and really learned a lot and then was able to work through to DoD CIO when, uh, when Terry Halverson was the DoD CIO. He asked me to join his team. And then I was with DoD CIO for about eight, nine years. And then I was the deputy CIO for Information Enterprise. And then when the deputy secretary of defense asked me to lead that study, I did that and I transitioned over to my, my current role. So I think just some key takeaways from from that kind of trajectory <laughs> might seem like a meandering path is that, um, one, you just need to be open to the possibilities. Two, be intellectually curious. Never stop learning. Three, put yourself in uncomfortable situations. So that's how you grow. Um, and four, and the most important one is nurture your network. So the folks that I, I worked with 20 years ago at my first company I'm still in contact with today, um, all the way through each time I was promoted or had an opportunity to work at a different organization, my network has grown. And they take care of me and I take care of them. And th- this is how you're able to make things happen because it fundamentally comes down to people mm-hmm. um, and who you support, who the knowledge and what you can learn from each and every person because you're never going to know everything, nor should that be a goal to achieve. But what you should do is meet as many different people who have different backgrounds and perspectives. And through that, you can weave something that you will never have if you only uh, just do it by yourself. Yeah. How do you lead? What, what, what's, what are some of the principles you use? Well, I, um, I think the, the bottom line is, is just treating everyone with respect. And it doesn't matter who they are or where they come from. Uh, you just treat people with respect. Um, you truly listen and you get to know them on a personal level. Like I'm I'm very much a type of person who knows just about every, one thing about someone who's on my team. And then they know something about me too. Like I like to share my vulnerabilities when I make mistakes, um, when I do something right. Because I want to show that, you know, I'm human. I'm not a, a superhero by any stretch of the imagination. And the illusions that are kind of created are just that. Those are illusions. And I want people to see me for who I am, and I want to see people for who they are, and then extend the grace that's required for that. And I think based on that, that's where you really are able to build a team that um, feels safe to collaborate, that they know that they're going to be heard, and their opinions and thoughts are going to be respected, that they're going to be taken into account, that um, the work that they do matters, and it's going to be folded into um, either a strategic vision or an implementation activity, and they can see themselves in that. And I think to me that's to me that's leadership. And then the last thing I'll say is, I have an incredibly amazing team. They're so intelligent, so um, dedicated, so professional. I just get out of their way, right? So if there's roadblocks or impediments, 
My responsibility is to remove that for them. I want to be able to create enough structure for them to be successful. That's what leadership is, is knowing who your people are, what their strengths and weaknesses are. And the way you go about doing that is by actually engaging with your team Mm -hmm. and learning. And they learn from you. And then it just, again, to steal something I said earlier, it's a circle of goodness. And I think that's – and you can weather just about everything by having that because they know that you have their back and you know that they have yours. What are the key priorities for the Information Management and Technology Directorate within the Office of Secretary of Defense? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Danielle Metz, Director of the Information Management and Technology Directorate and Chief Information Officer within the Office of Secretary of Defense. So, Danielle, in your annual report, I'll call it, I, I like this phrase. You, you kind of point out that the IT capabilities form the connective tissue that ties the Office of Secretary of Defense and all their missions together. And to that end, I was hoping you could kind of maybe uh, highlight some of the key strategic priorities you're pursuing, or at least tell us your vision going forward. Right. So I think that um, the way that we're going about this is um, in a sequencing fashion. Because I I think that's the other thing that, you know, when you want to do a huge modernization activity, you go for the Big Bang. And then because it takes too long, it's too expensive, and people's persistence kind of wears out, you fall flat. So what we want to be able to do is this in um, a series of building blocks. And the first building block was what we call common IT. And I think about common IT as your networks, your end-user devices, um, strategies to get to cloud adoption, and your service desk. And so those are what we endeavored to do um, over the past year. And the first thing that we did was we developed in concert with um, our customer base and the service provider, the first ever common IT memorandum of agreement between OSD and the service provider. And on its face, it might sound like, okay, you did a document, but it's so much more than that because we clearly went over roles and responsibilities for the customer, the service provider, and my office. Uh, We also went through um, the services that were going to be provided. 
created service level agreements and performance metrics associated with that. That had never been done before. And if you go back when we were talking about the landscape, the IT landscape, part of the problem was nothing was written down, nothing was codified, no one knew what was happening, who was doing what to whom. So that's a breeding ground of just frustration, anger, finger pointing, and an inability to do anything right. Um, so based on the, the listening, uh, listening sessions that we had with the, um, the principal staff assistants, um, there was common themes in terms of what were points of frustration. Um, the first was the service desk. And so we have a service desk in the Pentagon, um, and it's what I'll call two-tiered. General population for government civilian and contractors, and then VIP for senior executives. Obviously, the VIP, amazing. General population, no. Um, and so when you kind of peel and dig into um, kind of the inequality, I'll call it the service desk, a lot of it has to do with how we went about doing the contracts, lowest cost, technically acceptable, a lot of turnover, which means you have um, fractured processes. There's shaky institutional knowledge. Um, so DISA, Defense Information Systems Agency, had this uh enterprise program that was called Global Service Desk. So they were uh, deploying to uh, the defense agency's field activities. They had a plan, kind of like a little star in the horizon of when they wanted to be able to uh, migrate the Pentagon to this. Well, we took the initiative to accelerate that plan. And so we were successful in advocating for dollars, receiving dollars, and DISA will start implementing the Global Service Desk um, this fiscal year. And so that's going to be a significant change. Uh, so not only modernizing the tools that the service desk has, but also how we, how we go about using the service desk. So instead of it being 100% outsourced, it is going to be uh, what I'll call insourced. So we are professionalizing um, the tier one and tier two folks that they're, they're government. So they will be on um, GS9, 11, 12. Mm -hmm. So that will help cut down on a lot of the turnover. That will help build the correct foundations for the institutional knowledge that is needed. Um, and then the, the last piece that we're able to do is, unlike in today's current environment with the service desk, where everything is really locked down, so a user can't do anything. You, mm -hmm. Everything has to go through the service desk. So you have to do a travel ticket, and it just kind of spirals out. A lot more automation and uh, knowledge management will be bestowed upon the user. So th for little things that make sense, they'll be able to do themselves. So that will create a sense of kind of like control, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, reduce the burden on the, on the service desk. So that to me will be a huge step forward um, and really addresses problems that the user community brought to us. So we were able to show in short order our value by listening, coming up with a plan, advocating for resources, and now implementing in a year. So that, to me, is incredibly um, significant. So those are two of the big things. Um, kind of in the future, what we're working on is um, the cloud adoption piece for OSD. Um, OSD, I think, is probably 50 yards behind the start line. 
And it's really because the fact that, you know, during those consolidation efforts um, for over the tw- past 20 years, we took away the technical acumen, the professionals who were embedded or a part of um, the individual organizations to kind of scoop those up. We took away dollars. There wasn't a CIO for OSD. There's not an authorizing official for um, OSD. So there's a lot of pain points and burdens that really hinder um, OSD's ability to go out um, cloud adoption. So we're working on a corporate playbook to articulate, um, you know, business processes that will inform the technical processes. And we're doing some pilot efforts with some of the PSAs. And then we're working really closely with Sharon Woods and her team at DISA, yes, at the Hack, um, and trying to, again, make it so that we have the right tools in place and the right business processes in place to be able to do smart strategies for cloud adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's on the, the horizon, but we're, we're doing that partnership today. Um, a lot of the planning is going in, again, with the stakeholders uh, along with uh, DISA on that. So I think, to me, that's just really kind of showcasing the idea that we talked about earlier, listening, coming up with a plan, the right resources, the follow-through through execution. And this might be the wrong place for this question, but I, really with all the stuff you've done from the beginning, from the origin story, as you put it, to you know, doing that IT baseline. But before we get into that specific effort, which you touched on, I'm wondering, as you were analyzing and identifying some of the concerns, and then you delivered your report, and then you were bequeathed with the idea of building this organization, are there any sort of lessons you've learned that you'd like to share that maybe you wouldn't do or you would do differently or maybe you you would do even more of? Uh, I think that uh, the thing that I would do differently is I wish I was a better storyteller early on to be able to, and I think that a lot of CIOs have struggled with this and that's why technology is where it is and why we're not as advanced as we ought to be Um, within the federal government, uh, or at least I'll say within DOD. And it's being able to really connect with the C-suite so that those who don't fancy themselves as technologists or see technology as kind of less than, that you're able to tie it to whatever their business outcome is for success. Um, And I think it's changing the conversation of technology, um, using less buzzwords. Stop being so dire with how things are, right? Um, and maybe showing how you can build upon the successes so that you can go after the right resources at the right time. I think those are the things that, you know, in hindsight, I wish that I could have done better. But because we're active learners is what I'm doing today and have endeavored to do. And so each and every time I have an opportunity to speak, it's an opportunity for me to get better as a storyteller to make sure that I'm really connecting with the individual or the um, the group that I'm um, engaging with and ensuring that the message of what we mean by technology and the benefits of it um, and the reasons why investment is needed in order to get to a better outcome is important. Yeah, and there's one thing I want to touch on because I think you, you really nailed it was the idea of the importance of governance. People find it like boring, compliant. I don't know what whatever the perspective or the, they have, but to me it's foundational to, to, to what you do. So can you elaborate a little bit more on what made you – how did it go flipping that 
script, so to speak, to focus less on the service provider and more on the customer? So I think that was driven by a couple of things. One, the listening sessions. And then two, because I'm also a user. So I have my own <laughs> you know, opinions and frustrations and such like that. And so I think that it's an opportunity to kind of rebalance the scales um, and show that there's power in numbers. So the customers are the ones that are receiving the services. And so we're the ones that are responsible to articulate what our needs are. And that was what was being missed. And so the service provider was in an awful position to try to balance 17 points of light within uh, OSD, joint, um, joint staff, and the Department of Headquarters Army. That's a lot to ask on a service provider. It goes well beyond what they were uh, stood up to do. And so you can already see that we've set them up for failure. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we were trying to, to go after. There's a smarter way about doing this where we're really able to um, offload the unnecessary things that we put on the service provider and smarten up the customer base so that we can um, be able to hold ourselves to account. We can um, kind of treat each other as peers instead of adversaries because we're all going after the, the same amount of precious resources. So if we can come up with a strategy where there's enough commonality, and I always believe there's more commonality than uniqueness, how you go about doing it is differently, but there's a lot of commonality that we can do. So if we're able to kind of stitch together OSD's perspectives, joint staffs, and the Department of Headquarters Army for that common piece then we can go after those resources together instead of kind of sniping at each other. And then based on that, we can come up with agreed upon performance metrics, uh, what we think the service level agreement is in partnership with the service provider. And then as the service provider implements our plans of action, then the governance structure allows us to be able to continue to have that community, to continue to foster that rapport, that openness, the safe space to exchange ideas um, and to have, you know, real conversations that are data driven because we're using the same performance metrics. You know, one of the things I got out of your review, I'll call it, is this effort that you pursued and you kind of alluded to it, I think, earlier about the getting the current IT baseline. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that, what that entailed. But more importantly, how did that analysis help you figure out or inform sort of your your stretch to IT modernization down the road. Right. So I think that that was um, going back to the, the building blocks and the, the sequencing. That's tied to the common IT piece. And if you don't know your inventory sure. and you don't know kind of where your starting point is, it's incredibly hard to come up with a strategy to improve X, Y, or Z. And so over the past 20 years or so, you can see how there was kind of an erosion of just the common IT baseline and associated funding um, with that. And that makes it really difficult to understand how what, what is true. Yeah. So we have to go back to, to data and facts and not conjecture and feelings. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted to be able to kind of do that baseline, working with um, the, the customers as well as the service provider. We're also working with a third-party uh, vendor to help us with the data um, so that we're not 100% reliant on doing data calls. Yeah. So the data is there. It's a matter of how we're going to go about mining it. And so kind of weaving this all together, again, very transparently, openly, so everyone understands what we're doing. And they're a part of the, the process, um, creating that baseline. We were able to you know, identify 
for conference rooms. Each conference room that an OSD organization has is configured wildly differently from each other. And most of them aren't configured with the current technology that we have, like Microsoft Teams. Mm -hmm. And so wouldn't that be wonderful if we would be able to have standard configuration with the current technology that has been deployed? So regardless of if I'm with XPSA or YPSA, it doesn't matter what room I go in, I will know how to bring up whatever the collaborative productivity technology is and be able to successfully have whatever my engagement is that I need to have. So we're going about um, doing that. Again, that sounds kind of basic, but when you don't have it, Mm -hmm. it sounds remarkable. And so just going about that is a process in and of itself because you have to, you know, again, engage with so many stakeholders, ensure that you find the common denominator, agree to that common denominator, and then go after the right resources in the plan for the execution. So those are the kind of like the steps that we do and across the board where things just haven't existed or have been broken or non-existent, um, that's what we're tackling. And I think that you have to do it in a um, kind of in a, like I say, a building block manner. I can't go after everything, but I can build upon the successes all the while um, showcasing the value that our office brings to bear, showing that, you know, this kind of methodology works. And so that's also um, kind of endearing the customer base to our office, saying like, hey, we're able to actually see tangible outcomes right now. This is great. Um, and then you just keep moving up the ladder, if you I mean, will. if you're making their life easier because it's consistent, yeah. it, it's uh, it, it'll, it'll shift that mindset, which you talked about earlier. I'm wondering, are you planning to go towards a working capital fund model? Uh, yes, that's definitely our plan um, with the, the service provider. And so we've been working very closely um, with DISA um, and um, Barb Crawford, their chief financial officer and her team. Um, this is something that you know DISA has wanted to do for um, a few cycles now, um, but we weren't there yet. And part of the reason why was because One, we didn't have a memorandum of agreement, so we didn't know what services, who was providing what to whom, roles, responsibilities. So with that memorandum of agreement that will be uh, signed shortly out, that kind of mollifies that. The second big gapping hole um, that I think we've corrected is the governance structure um, so that people, organizations can be a part, able to be a part of the discourse, hear, communicate, complain, (laughs) <laughs> celebrate, whatever the case might be. But this is a, a, a forum for that type of engagement. Um, and so that creates, again, the transparency and accountability. And based on all of that, this will allow us for the service provider to move from an appropriated fund to a working capital fund, which is what a service provider have should have already been. Because um, it allows for the flexibility, the dynamic of technology is really hard to kind of forecast out what your needs are two years um, before it actually happens for five years out. Um, we're, we have not been very successful at that. And how could you? Like, no, no one has a crystal ball. So it allows for the service provider to be more responsive. They're not as constrained. But it also allows the service provider to connect with their customer base because you, the customer base actually understands what the services are. You have credible service level agreements. Um, it keeps each 
side honest. And then the other thing that it allows that we haven't been successful in actually implementing is we have a lot of legacy technology, a lot. And what we fail to do is as we provide new technology that should be sunsetting old technology, we don't do it. And part of the reason why is because people are comfortable with the old technology. They may not be witting of the new technology. They may be scared of it. They may not know how to use it. So by going about what our office is doing with that dynamic training, the listening sessions, those engagements, really with with the user base, that will ensure that what we're maximizing our technology. And then you can start shutting off this old technology, which means there's cost savings. Or you can apply those dollars for the needed investment to keep going. Because as we know, this environment can't be static because our threats and vulnerabilities are not. How does the Information Management and Technology Directorate drive a better digital experience across the Office of Secretary of Defense and its IT enterprise? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Danielle Metz, Director of the Information Management and Technology Directorate and Chief Information Officer within the Office of Secretary of Defense. A lot of the work you're doing is is driving implementation of technology to sort of make it, cultivate a better digital experience for the end user across the Office of Secretary of Defense's IT enterprise. I'm wondering what else are you doing in that area to to kind of bolster that digital experience for for folks. Well, I think the one of the other re- things that we were doing that hasn't been done before, um, the Air Force did it. They did it a couple years ago. Is having user experience surveys, and so we work closely with the Air Force, and we embarked on doing OSC's first ever user experience survey. So it was. Uh, we did exactly, we followed their methodology. And so we started in February. Um, so we have about 11, 10 months worth of, of data. Our goal is to um, have a year. So in February 2024, that'll be our first baseline. And we asked three questions, very simple. And then a the fourth is a free form. Um, and this kind of allows us to get unique data point from our user base. And the idea of doing it for a year is that our goal is to get the entire OSD population an opportunity to do this survey. So we're getting about 10% per month response rate, which I think is is 
pretty good. It's on par with, you know, um, industry standard. Um, what we learned early on, and Colt and his team advised us of this too, was, you know, when you ask questions that you think are simple, they're not. And so you start seeing how the responses are a little misleading or confusing because of the way that the question was interpreted, right? But what we didn't want to do was tweak it midway through. We needed to create that baseline. And it helps us learn and adapt. And so year two, we'll be able to refine those questions. The timing of when we did this from February 2023 to February 2024 was really important because it's going to assess the current state before we start doing um, our modernization activities like the Global Service Desk. Um, so this, it just worked out really well that we're able to get, I'll say, FY23 and the beginning of FY24 as our baseline. So two things will happen. We'll be able to refine our questions to solicit better responses, but also we'll be able to see as we're implementing the Global Service Desk, as we're doing um, the conference room um standard configuration upgrades, as we're doing our end-user lifecycle replacement, uh, hopefully with a three-year replacement, um, those big kind of muscle movements, we have a working theory that we think that people are going to receive this well, but it'll be good to hear from the actual user if that's true or not, right? If they validate that working theory or for missing the mark. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of allows us to be able to adjust, right? Um, so that we're not sticking to a course that is not meeting the mark for for our user. So, Danielle, I want to talk about the classified aspects of your portfolio. Could you tell us more about the rollout of DOD 365 classified? Yeah, so um, the DOD 365 is very near and dear to my heart because when I was in DOD CIO, my team and I were the ones that um, deployed the precursor to well, Microsoft Teams during the pandemic. And so it really kind of allow me to realize the importance of um, the user experience, governance, so working with all the stakeholders. So all of the work that we did during the pandemic and then um, the permanent solution of DoD 365, I was able to take those and apply it to what we're doing here as the OSD um, CIO. Another lesson that we learned from those days, because we were so maniacally focused on getting that capability out at a certain time frame, because we just had to have it done, that we didn't take the time to refine the business processes or the training. Oh. And so now you can see why that is a big, those are two big features in our approach with the OSD CIO team. So DOD 365 for uh, on our unclassified is the full office suite productivity and collaboration. It's the first time that everyone could be on the same suite of capabilities teams. Uh, you no longer need to be tethered to your physical office desk. You can work safely um, and effectively anywhere. And it could be on your phone, like your government furnished um, mobile phone. But we don't have that on um, our classified network. And for the longest time, um, the department has struggled with that. So we very much have very subpar uh, collaboration and it's uh, patchwork capabilities. So with uh, in partnership with Microsoft uh, and DISA um, and GSA, uh, Microsoft was able to deploy DOD 365 for what we call aisle six, 
which is on our uh, classified uh, network. And so DISA has been deploying this uh, since this spring. So I think there's about 100,000 users with uh, combat commands, defense agency field activities. But as it relates more local to us, we uh, endeavored upon doing um, the migrations within within the uh, Pentagon recently. Um, And so we are on a path to have all of OSD um, migrated to this new capability probably in the next, by January of, of 2024. And what this will allow for our classified work is that we will have the same capabilities that we have on our unclassified for classified. So we'll be able to have teams. We'll be able to do virtual collaboration. We'll have OneDrive, so cloud-based um, filing system. Um, and then the, the Office Suite productivity all tied together. This, to me, is, is a huge game changer. This is what we've been wanting to have for a really long time, and we're on the precipice of uh, achieving it for the entire department. Um, and a lot of credit goes um, to DISA for, for making that happen. That's great. So you mentioned cloud, and I just really quickly want to get a sense that you folks have a cloud modernization strategy that you're pursuing yet. And then and one thing I haven't asked is what your relationship is to the actual DOD CIO and how are you working, collaborating with that organization to refresh any of the hardware you have and maybe migrate to the cloud? Sure. We have a very close relationship with DOD CIO for two reasons. One... Uh, the role of DOD CIO is the organization that sets the enterprise guidance and policy um, for each uh, enterprise, so Army, Department of Army, Department of Navy, the defense agencies, field activities, and now OSD, to be able to implement in their respective um, enterprises. And then secondly, DOD CIO is part of the PSAs. So they're part of the OSDIT enterprise. So it is a unique but important um, relationship that we have and work with them. And then the the third point I'll say is uh, DOD CIO is um, the principal staff advisor where DISA um, reports to them. And so DISA is the execution arm for just about all the technology uh, modernization activities that happens within the department. But for here in the Pentagon, um, they're who we turn to. Um, so there's a, an incredible uh, relationship that we need to have with DISA and DODCIO to be able to effectuate the change that we have. So if I could just take a snapshot, the vision that DODCIO has for the department's enterprise, we take, synthesize, roll into our modernization strategy, and DISA executes mm-hmm. on our behalf. Um, are there any other accomplishments you want to highlight? And what does the future of your office, your portfolio look like going forward? So um, right now we have an incredibly tiny team. (laughs) And to go after all the building blocks that we want to be able to go after, get our hands around common IT, and then move forward to mission IT, which is where you see defense business systems and some more of the uh, exquisite efforts and activities, we do need to have a little bit more resources. And so um, that is what we're working on for, for FY24 so that we can mature the office to go after the known gaps in terms of completing the mission with Common IT, then being able to work with the OSD um, organizations to build out their needs for mission IT. Um, And a lot of that's centered around defense businesses uh, systems. And of course, DODCIO has the overall lead with that. They're the ones that kind of come up with, again, that enterprise vision. But we need to have someone to translate and implement it for OSD. And so I think our, our office could be a natural fit for that. 
but only if we have the resources to be able to do that. So I can't accept mission and not be able to, to be successful. Unf- unfunded mandates right. here. We know how well that works. <laughs> like there's, yeah, history's yeah. littered with that. So I asked this question. I was wondering if there are, there are you know, three takeaways you'd like to leave with our audience about the work that you do. To me, it's all about uh, the people. So I'm sure that if you listen to the entirety of this interview, you'll see the, the theme of people, um, the ability and, and the user um, from a professional standpoint. But it's all about the people. Um, you can't do anything if you do not have a team. Um, and I, my team and I come into work every day because we are in service to the user base to ensure that each of the principal staff assistance organizations have the ability to execute their mission. And that's what we did when we were in DOD CIO. So it's really about the people and then how you connect with the people, what infrastructure or structure that you need to ensure that you're building that trust, those relationships, those enduring relationships, and that there's mutual benefit, right? That's what relationships are, is that each individual organization gets something out of it, but the collective also benefits. And then that goes to the idea of not looking at things as an individual, but really as a community. And like I said before, there's uh, everyone wants to think that they're unique, that their organization is super special, and that may be well and good. But there's so much more commonality. And by having those honest conversations um, and realizing that by sharing, mm-hmm. we're not taking away, but enhancing. Um, and that goes to that trust factor. Um, so again, back to the people, making sure that you can have those connections um, so that you can see that you really are there to um, in service of good and not in a malicious way. Yeah. And one last question. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Well, I think I've been, I don't want to put, well, I'll say how long I've been doing this. So I think I've been doing this for about 16 years and I've loved every day that I've done it. Um, I think that it's an an incredible experience. You get to learn so much. Um, You get to learn a lot about yourself. And if you're very much dedicated to public service and serving a community for good, then this is definitely where you can translate that into a impactful meaningfulness. Danielle, thanks for coming out today, and I appreciate your time. But more importantly, I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Danielle Metz, Director of the Information Management and Technology Directorate and Chief Information Officer within the Office of Secretary of Defense. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, Audible, or on your favorite podcast app, or as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.